Rick Madison, Rick and Friends. Thank you for listening. Um, I know I always say that, but I, I really am uh, appreciative of you taking the time. Today, we have a, a very interesting guest. He is, um, well, what was great about LinkedIn is that sometimes you get to uh, get these invites or you see people and you're like, man, that, that person's got an interesting story and I really want to reach out to them. So his name is Darren Taylor. And uh, first off, welcome to the big show. Thank you. Great to be here. So Darren, um, just give people a, a quick overview, perhaps of your, you know, you, you've done a lot of things and it's impossible, like we'd spend the whole podcast on talking about what you've done, but just give people an overview of, of your daily work and uh, the, the category that you're invested in. Sure. For the last 18 years of my life, I've been um, immersed in a journey to, to help families and individuals find the the relief that I found from addiction and alcoholism. Um, that started out with, um, you know, a humble desire to, you know, chat with people in our community about addiction and recovery. And it, and it led to a discovery that, listen, I had to go back to school if I wanted to do this seriously. Um, I connected with an interventionist in the Okanagan who helped me get certified as a clinical interventionist. And, and ultimately uh, acquire some meaningful mental health credentials, became addictions counselor, ran outpatient clinics in the Okanagan, traveled Canada doing intervention work. That led to um, more and more work in the, in the workplace that became a big part of what I did week to week is working with employers and organizations to address what they knew was there, but weren't really sure how to get to it and to sort of shift the culture in their organizations. So my work with employers led me, after 30 years of being self-employed, to um, joining an organization called EHN Canada. Um, I, I, I head up a part of their business development team in Western Canada, working with professionals and organizations and employers um, who send us patients. So, I mean, my weeks are varied. This afternoon, I'm meeting with families to talk about um, getting their loved ones into addiction treatment. Um, tomorrow I'm meeting with first responder groups and police organizations to talk about some of the struggles that they're having addressing trauma in, in their population. And later in the week, I'm, I'm speaking to physicians in Saskatoon. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I love it, but I think what gets me up in the morning is, is the desire to see people find the change and the shift that uh, I was fortunate enough to have in my life after battling alcohol for more than two decades. So that's an interesting story. That's where you came from. That's yeah. that was your story up to that point. Was there a a moment of clarity or a moment where you just just decided, you know, because your story is going to be different from everyone else's? But how did you kind of turn that corner? Uh, my hand was forced. Y you know, the um, w w one of the hallmarks of anyone battling addiction is typically. Uh, uh, a, a path marked with significant negative consequences and 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 an inability to change your behavior in spite of negative consequences. Um, that really was the story of my life going back to my early teens. Um, if I look back on anything negative that happened to me, the common denominator was my relationship with alcohol. So, but but in spite of it all, I was successful um, professionally. I had a I had a home and a wife and a young child. Um, in my late 30s, um, I was a bit of a, a bit of a chameleon. By day, I was a successful business person in a small town, British Columbia. You know, belonged to the Chamber of Commerce, went to Rotary meetings. 
Um, by night, I lost myself in drugs and alcohol, and it took a terrible toll on my family, um, particularly my wife and my young son. And, uh, you know, despite several attempts by my family to sit me down and address the problem, I was pretty cagey and I could shake it off and I could present well. In the, in the throes of, of the worst of it, I could show up and for short periods of time present as more or less together as I am today, right? Um, but eventually I couldn't keep the balls in the air and I came home one day and my wife had had enough and she says, listen, you know, it's time for you to go. And of course, because it's always all about me, you know, my immediate response was, well, what am I supposed to do? And she looked straight at me and said, you might want to consider going to treatment. Wow. So that's what happened. I, 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 ended, I, I ended up in very short order. Things became unraveled for me. All of a sudden I had nowhere to live. Um, you know, yeah, they say in the 12-step program, things became unmanageable. They became highly unmanageable. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have family in Ontario that cared enough to step up financially and send me to a world-class treatment facility. Uh, I was scared to death, didn't know what I was getting into. Um, but I did everything they asked of me, and I, I, I did it. I came back and um, came back to a clean slate. You know, I was sober and um, looking for something different to do with my life. So, I, you know, I didn't wake up and have an epiphany. You know, I'd say, today's the day I'm going to stop drinking. Uh, it, it was really sort of several little things along the way. I mean, years before that happened, I would look in the mirror and, and just shake my head and go, you know, what on earth are you doing? You have the world by the tail and all you do every night is drink. Um, you know, so, and, and, I, and I've seen that play out with countless patients that I've worked with, you know, as resistant as they are, the defiance, the delusion, the denial, in their heart of hearts, when you finally get through to them, they'll look at you and say, yeah, I, I, I've known for a while. And I was that guy. I, I knew for a while. When I finally got to treatment, uh, I just sat down and said, yeah, this is long overdue. What do you need me to do, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting that you have that background because I think you're able to see that, that caginess uh, of, of somebody sitting there who is presented well for a number of years yeah. and really knows how to hide it well. And they come to a point where the, the gig is up, but they're still, they're still going to keep that to themselves. They're very, you know, they, they're protecting this secret mm -hmm. for so long that they actually get very, very good at it. Oh, yes. And, and then you're able to kind of see through that veil and go, oh, wait a second. I, I see some of these symptoms and, and your family does, of course, because yeah. it's tough to hide it from, from the close family. But that, that's got to make you even, if, if it could be even said, better at your job. It helps, you know, and it didn't, it didn't come overnight. Um, it's, it's, it's funny you articulate it the way you did. Cause what, two weeks ago, I was sitting in my office here in Kelowna with a professional woman, a uh, successful businesswoman in Kelowna who was, uh, you know, obviously in my office for a reason. And she said to me about halfway into our first session, she said, um, I can't bullshit you, can I? <laughs> I said, uh, maybe not. <laughs> You know, and that was the beginning of her opening up and, and, and the two of us having a serious conversation about, okay, you know, now we got that out of the way. What are we going to do about this? Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. um, what can we do to help you? And what is, what is, how are we going to find your path to lasting change? So, I, and I was, as I was walking up to the office today, I saw somebody popping on a cigarette, clearly yeah. enjoying it. Like, yeah. like, you know how those, 
there's certain people that you can just tell that they are just, this is the first Siggy of the day and they're just enjoying yeah. every aspect of it. And, and you think about caffeine, you think about, you know, different, different things that could be seen as addictive. Yeah. Is that kind of a, and, and again, I'm just, I'm just asking on the basis of, are those all triggers for the alcoholism and then into the drugs? Like is each one of those things, even eating, can that, can that lead down the path of addictive and, and uh, more nefarious habits, I guess? I'm not qualified to speak to whether it can lead to addiction. What I've learned from psychiatrists who've mentored me over my career is that these things are all interconnected. Mm. You know, um, our, our, our body's response to those sorts of stimuli and uh, the, the, the mood-altering response that, that we get from it, for, for, for many people, it's, it's benign. You know, the, you know, cancer risk aside, the lift that they get from a cigarette or the lift that we get when we have a cup of coffee is one thing. Just like for the majority of the population, having a cold beer on a, on a hot day is, is a benign activity. It's enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but for some of us, it, it, it triggers a dopamine response in, in the brain that can become compulsive. So, um, I mean, these are probably questions for a neurobiologist or a psychiatrist, but what I, what I've seen bear out in my patients and what I've learned with treatment providers and psychiatrists I work with is that there, there is a strong connection between these substances and our ability to remain abstinent from things like alcohol or cocaine or, or, or opioids. There's some compelling research connecting smoking cessation, for instance, to sobriety outcomes in patients overcoming addiction. Mm. You know, does that mean that smoking leads one to relapse? Well, no, no, it doesn't. But um, patients that we work with in our treatment facilities um, learn a tremendous amount about this this illness. And one of the things they learn is their to, to be self-aware of their own inclination towards mood-altering behaviors. So that could be coffee, it, it, it could be nicotine, it could be pornography, it could be gambling. So, yeah, and that's interesting because, you yeah. know, we all think of, you know, addiction and, and drugs and alcohol are probably the first on that list. But there's yeah. actually other other addictions out there. And and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about a friend who's had probably three relapses right. in, in regards to alcohol addiction. Um, very driven individual, very competitive, um, very intelligent, able to hide, has the resources to, to purchase solitude, I guess you could say. Right. And, and with that, um, has failed miserably when it comes to alcohol and, and just trying to get back on the sober train. He, he came to a point where, I just don't think being sober was exciting enough. Like it, it gave him, you're talking about that dopamine. Like mm-hmm. it was that, it was that rush of, I wonder if I can pull this off. <laughs> like, and it kept going to that. And he had an addictive personality that was, okay, I've drank one bottle of red wine. I wonder if I can drink three before I'm found out sort of thing. Sure. Like, like that was kind of his, his game plan. And I, I, and smart, smart, clever individual, brilliant even, and continue to just fall down in the face of of this addiction. So I'm I'm just curious about, you know, our paths and and how possibly you can make sobriety interesting <laughs> for someone like that. 
Yeah. Well, that, 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 that's a good point. I suppose if he was sitting here, I would challenge him on, on, on whether sobriety not being interesting really was the, the root of his problem. I mean, I, I don't know, right? The, um, certainly there, there's, there's no reason to be bored in this life, in this world that we're in the, um, but, but, but the very, I mean, the reality with so many patients we work with, I do a lot of post-treatment work, integrating people back into the workplace and the family post-treatment is, you know, they're bored. They don't know what to do. They don't have any phone numbers in their phone of people that don't drink like they drink. Right. right? So there, there has to be an intentional effort for, for most of us to change our, change our game plan. You know, what do we do for fun? Who do we interact with? Um, that can be extremely uncomfortable. For some patients, chronic relapse is, is part of their story because their treatment episodes have failed to identify and, and turn over the rock that needed to be turned over. It's, it's, it's different for everyone. Uh, for some that I've worked with, I've worked with some high performers in our community who, who have a similar cycle to what you described. And, and for them, their conclusion is that this stuff really has its hooked in, hooks in me and this, this is going to be a lifelong long struggle. You know, we, um, I'm not, I'm not a proponent of, of, of the notion I hear sometimes actually you know, really grates at me that relapse is, is, is part of recovery because it's, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, but it also doesn't have to be the end of the world. Each diamond is uniquely different. It is special and beautiful because of its rarity. That is the power and magic of a diamond. A new store in Kelowna is open to showcase this symbol of love and commitment. Herrera, fine jewelry. The name in Latin means rare and exceptional. Much like a diamond is extraordinary and rare, just like her. Herrera, fine jewelry. Featuring Takuri, Noam Carver, Burks, and Simon G. Jewelry. So with these people that, that do relapse, they've, they've almost subscribed to a failure. Like as soon as they start treatment, maybe they've heard or somebody has said relapse is part of that, that journey backwards. Right. So as, so as an alcoholic, when I'm in treatment and I'm early on in the process and someone says to me, oh, relapse is, is just part of it. Well, what do I hear? I, I hear license to relapse. Mm -hmm. All right. So we want to be really careful with that. Um, but, but, but what, what I have seen play out in very real terms is, this, uh, you know, I've, I've learned to distinguish between a slip and a relapse, you know, and if, if we're setting people up for success post-treatment, uh, we're providing, uh, uh, you know, an assembly of, of commitments and, and wraparound support, um, you know, emotionally, cognitively, structurally, you know, they have safe place to live, that they have uh, community in their life, are they interacting with men and women? Uh, on a similar journey? Are they seeing their physician? Are they seeing their therapists? If it's a workplace situation, are they peeing in a cup to verify their sobriety? Because uh, accountability is, is our friend. There's a significant difference as far as how it manifests itself and, and how people respond. If, uh, if I'm six months sober and I go out and drink three beers and then I, 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 I you know, my phone will ring and say, Darren, I slipped last night. I got to come in and see you. Um, how we address that and how the patient reacts to that and, and, and is able to pivot is significantly different than the individual who I haven't seen in months who comes in and says, you know what, I hid it from my wife, I hid it from my boss, but I've been drinking for six or eight months and now I'm really deep. I, I, I'm right back where I was, right? Um, so 
there's, I mean, pe people, people who I work with, they learn very early on that the process, our work together is going to be drawn out and it's going to be extended. It's not going to be, there's no episodic fix. This is not like a broken leg where when you get the cast off and you're, you're, you're good to go. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, outcomes are very, very encouraging battling, uh, addiction issues if there's a commitment to long-term wellness and what we do post-treatment with patients um, is really the driver. You know, what are we doing for accountability and, and really life-changing support post-treatment? Most of us in the treatment industry, most facilities are not set up to do a terrific job of that. It was interesting. I was reading a research article about homelessness and right. I was talking about how they were releasing inmates from correctional in institutions. Yeah. And basically putting them, setting them up to fail. Uh, there's since been a group that's that's created some programs and some learning around that. But but basically they're saying we really need to build these steps into this integration back into society if we're going to not just continue to incur more homeless population, especially by people that have, you know, they don't have that structure, they don't have that support. I keep hearing that word from you, which is support, mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the key. Uh, triggers for a lot of people is if they if they feel isolated, I think they're going to just continue. Well, no one else cares, and there's no accountability, so I'm going to just you know do what I do. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's and, part and we of have it. to be very very intentional about providing that for patients. Um, I mean, it's hard enough to do it within the private system that I'm fortunate enough to work in. Um, but within the public system and the the limitations of of, of resources. Um, we're, we're not, we're not doing a good enough job or really letting patients down. We're, we're, uh, I mean, we live in a jurisdiction in British Columbia where, um, we've, we, we've made a high priority to house people. Um, we've looked at homelessness as the problem and made a conscious decision as a community, as a, as a government to, uh, invest in housing, housing first, they talk about, Okay. Without, uh, without you, you, do, you don't hear much conversation about upstream solutions. You know, what are we doing to uh, avoid people getting to a place where their only resort is to live in the park, hopelessly addicted to drugs, right? What are we doing? Um, and, 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 if, and, and what are we doing once we have those people housed to help them get well? The communities... Kelowna, Vernon, what, what, what we hear from BC Housing is a promise to provide wraparound services. Mm -hmm. You know, we, um, we're going to house people because we can't help people, we can't keep alive, and if they're not housed, we can't. So we're going to provide wraparound services. Uh, the reality on the ground is the resources just aren't there. So sadly, and, and, and I say sadly because honestly, we're selling people short. Um, we're in a situation where we're, we're warehousing chronically addicted and severely mental, mentally ill patients in this province. You know, I've, I've, I've toured some of these, um, housing facilities that we're providing and it's heartwarming to see that people are living in a nice facility. They're being fed, they're safe. Um, but when you talk to them, they're, they're, they're still, uh, you know, hopelessly, uh, addicted. They have no independence. They haven't really made that shift. 
you know, so we, we've really done a disservice to them. And at the expense of taxpayers, we're, we're warehousing people for an illness that we know we could be treating. Each diamond is uniquely different. It is special and beautiful because of its rarity. That is the power and magic of a diamond. A new store in Kelowna is open to showcase this symbol of love and commitment. Herrera, fine jewelry. The name in Latin means rare and exceptional. Much like a diamond is extraordinary and rare, just like her. Herrera, fine jewelry. Featuring Takuri, Noam Carver, Burks, and Simon G. Jewelry. So, you know, when, when we hear about the housing first model, right? I think there's a, there's a myth out there that, well, we need, in order to get better, you need to have a roof over your head. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so safe supply, uh, low barrier housing, like all these words right. are, are, are perpetuated through the media. And I'm wondering, you know, obviously the, we were just chatting about the, the Portugal model, yeah. which is decriminalization, but there's a lot going on with that model. And I'm almost wondering if we're not, we're not thinking about that, that wraparound, that treatment, uh, as one and the same as the housing. Like if right. it's, so, it's, it's, it seems two part. Right. So w- w- when I speak out in opposition to harm reduction, what I'm really doing is, is challenging harm reduction as an end game. Um, you know, I'm, what I've seen successful, what other jurisdictions have seen successful, Portugal among among them, is using harm reduction as an on ramp as a beginning process. And, and and maybe just back up a bit and tell people what harm reduction means. Right. So 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 so, so the, the the notion being that, uh, and and the premise being, you know, we can't help people who are dead by virtue of misadventure or through overdose. So we're going to reduce harm by providing clean needles so they don't get hepatitis and HIV. We're going to house them so they're they're they safe and they have a roof over their head. Um, and now in British Columbia, we're introducing safe supplies so they're getting access to drugs. Uh, that we can presume are f- are free from fentanyl. All of these things are um, are, are something that I and, and most people I work closely with in in, in the field c- can get behind. I I, I think my, my challenge to 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 everyone, to professionals, and to people sitting at home scratching their head about their homelessness problem, is why are we stopping there? Okay. Um, the, these, so we get people housed, addiction is treatable. The mental health conditions, even the most complex men, mental health conditions that we see amongst our homeless population are manageable. Okay. We work alongside people every day who have health, uh, uh mental health conditions that, that are being managed and they're effective and productive in, in, in the workplace and in society. The, um, you, you, you know, the, the, the the problem comes w- with philosophies like this. Well, we can't force people to get help, okay? Housing First, um, the founders of Housing First in New York City sent an email to Councillor Scott Anderson and Vernon when he was talking about this, backing him up. Housing First did not mean housing only. Housing First, when it was founded, meant we're going to house you, we're going to get you safe, we're going to get you fed, you're, we're going to get your feet under you, and then we're going to... Uh, in order for you to remain in that housing, we're going to have you engage in some meaningful help so you can turn your life around. 
right? We're that's not a, that's we're, accountability in action. It's accountability. It's healthcare. It's getting people well. All right. So, but what we what we hear from from uh, some harm reduction advocates is, you know, we've got no business telling people what to do. They've got a right to, to to use if they. It has to be their decision to get help. If they don't, it has to be their decision or it won't work. Okay. But we can't have it both ways because on the one hand, we're saying. Um, you know, we have to excuse their behavior because addiction robs people of their ability to make healthy decisions around their own care. They, they can't help themselves. They're, uh, you know, behaving compulsively. And, um, you know, we have to have to extend them grace because this illness has robbed them of the ability to, to do anything different. So we can't on the one hand say that, most of which I agree with, by the way, and then turn around in the next breath and says, oh, by the way, we're going to impose upon that individual the serious responsibility of deciding if, when, and how they get help. Mm. It's incongruent. It's disingenuous. And, and, and hence the reason why it's not working. That's the reason why it's not working. Uh, l l l listen, and, and, and people will talk candidly about this who, who are in the, th in, in the grips of addiction. If, if, if someone says to me, you know, we're going to house you, we're going to feed you, we're going to provide you the drugs that is number one on your hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. Um. I'm a pretty happy guy. I'm a pretty happy guy because far down that list of needs is family, is meaningful employment, is financial independence. So we, you know, we can sit here and, 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 and impose what we think we would do in that position. But what we're, what we're not realizing is the reality that for, for that individual, his needs are being met. You know, we can say, well, surely to goodness, he, he doesn't want to live in a shelter the rest of his life. Well, you know what? Uh, for some of us, when we're at that point in our addiction, yeah, that's okay. Uh, so if, if, if we're not able to create an incentive, uh, a, a shift point, okay, for, for people to look up and go, okay, I'm willing to talk about doing something different. I kind of like living here. So in order to live here, you're telling me I've got to come and see this counselor or talk to this person and I'm going to have an opportunity to do this or do that. Okay. Okay. Um, I, uh, so, so often I, I, I've had, uh, you know, first responders and nurses and physicians talk to me about the revolving door. They see the same faces all the time. They're reviving people from overdose. They're seeing people injured or or, or uh, involved in accidents or overdose in the emergency room and nothing they can do. They, they sort of patch them up, send them on their way, they're back again and sometimes the same day. They, I get to know them and they're like, why don't we have people who do what you do working in the hospitals? Good, wow. good question. Why don't we have people trained in, in, in intervening and motivational interviewing and, and creating shift working in um, low barrier housing. Now, there'd be no point having them there if we didn't have clinical resources available to treat people. There would be no point having them there. But it, it, just, it, just, it just makes 
too much sense. So when, when those of us that advocate for change in this province, we're not looking at a, abandoning all of that apparatus in favor of something different. We're, we're looking at the next logical step in, in helping people get well. Back in a bit with, uh, with more Darren Taylor. Thank you. Each diamond is uniquely different. It is special and beautiful because of its rarity. That is the power and magic of a diamond. A new store in Kelowna is open to showcase this symbol of love and commitment. Herrera, fine jewelry. The name in Latin means rare and exceptional. Much like a diamond is extraordinary and rare. Just like her. Herrera, fine jewelry. Featuring Takuri, Noam Kava, Burks, and Simon G. Jewelry. Uh, we're back with Darren Taylor. Darren, so... You know, you're passionate about this 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 wraparound service. What would be the reason, other maybe it's money, resources, is that the main reason why the government would not perhaps embrace a model of wrap wraparound with housing? So it, I, I struggle to believe it's simply about resources because the business case to be made looks something like this. Um, anyone working in that system can agree that it's costing long-term an immense amount of money to keep people sick. Far more than it's going to cost us to get people well. Um, visits to the emergency room, housing. Um, police. Police. First responders. Yeah. Absolutely. What, what, they're te what they told us in Vernon, um, some of the BC housing uh, projects that they have there, I could be wrong in the neighborhood of $30,000 per year per individual. I heard 30 to 36. Yeah. Okay. So for $30,000, we can send patients to the top private addiction treatment facility in the country. Mm -hmm. All right. So I don't, it's not just about money. It's, it's, it's those of us that are, you know, are struggling to get anywhere with advocacy in this province. Um, are what we're seeing is a, is a philosophical, difference uh really a, a sort of loggerheads between th those of us advocating for patients right to access care and get well and overcome this versus those that advocate for the rights of the individual to remain sick despite a tacit acknowledgement that they're struggling with an ability to have the self-awareness to see just how unwell they are. It, it is an ironic equation, isn't it? It, it is ironic. You know, the, uh, and, and, and this, this, I can add to that irony, you know, going back to my conversations with, with physicians and nurses in, in the emergency ward and the way that we're handling these cases, get a chronic alcoholic motor vehicle accident in the emergency room, Families there. Oh, we've been trying to do something about drinking for years. Drinking for for years. Now, occasionally, I'll get a call from a physician. His family here could use your help. You know, try and do what I can to intervene. Family has the means. Get the person into treatment because that that's a moment in time where someone's usually open open to having a conversation. They're facing DUI charges. Most of the time, that doesn't happen. Another situation where. Uh, a patient coming out of the psych ward, chronically addicted to cocaine and alcohol. They were in the psych ward by virtue of a suicide attempt. Now, um, fortunately, 
we're trying behind the scenes to make arrangements to get that person into a treatment facility with the help of their employer. Uh, we were up against a situation where he was then discharged from the psych ward, handed a pamphlet, um, given a pat on the head and said, listen, there's a day program up at the health unit. You might want to talk about getting help for your addiction problems. Because we're like, wow, we'd rather we not be discharged, right? So, I mean, doctors are doing the best they can with the resources they have, mm -hmm. okay? Um, that That's the only resource that was available to them, the way it was explained to me, is is a pamphlet. Now, we, we even a layperson knows that the chances of that poor fellow finding his way up to the health unit, plugging into a day program, ain't going to happen, right? Here's the irony. If a physician in this province discloses that they need help with an alcohol or drug problem, what happens to them? They're immediately sent for an independent medical evaluation, the IME doctor. That IME doctor, if necessary, will refer them to a top treatment facility somewhere in Canada. They will be provided and mandated to participate in up to five years of monitoring compliance. They'll have to remain abstinent. They'll be subject to testing. They'll be seeing a therapist. Da 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 da. Because that's what addiction medicine tells us is the appropriate medical intervention. It seems uh, if I was a GP, I don't know if I would ever admit that. Well, that's a whole other conversation. And I, I could probably, I, I could probably introduce you to physicians who could talk about how that works and, and, and why that's effective. Uh, but sometimes people get outed. Yeah, you know, but but but, true, but yeah. my point is, for for doctors and nurses and other professionals and 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 people working for police forces and large organizations in Canada, if these things come up, there's a system. There's a system. There mm -hmm. there is there's a clearly defined sequence of best practices. True. Right. You think of, of you know, heart, heart disease. If, if if a patient presents with heart disease, they have a heart attack, and there's an assessment evaluation. We need to do bypass surgery. So we wouldn't entertain in that circumstance going, you know what? There's a real shortage of bypass surgeries this month, but here's a pamphlet on diet and exercise. And if that doesn't work, we'll prescribe a statin drug. Well, hold on a second. Everything just pointed to the fact that what I really need is bypass surgery. We don't have any of those. I mean, it would be unfathomable. Cancer, same thing, right? With mental health and addictions, that's what we're doing. There, there, there's a failure to follow any sort of medical model that assesses the patients, determines clinically appropriate intervention, and proceeds to connect the patient with the resources capable of delivering that level of care. So in the, in the documentary, a lot of people have seen, uh, based on the number count on YouTube, uh, Vancouver is dying. Mm -hmm. um, they were, now I'm quoting from the documentary about Dr. Henry talking about the fact that an, an addict on opioids is, is basically lost to us. Like we, we don't really have a lot, a uh, way back as much as other addictions. And so safe supply, harm reduction, seemingly a better way out for us of those who choose to get better can kind right. of thing. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and, and probably not very well, but it, it, it seems to be, can a government shift 
a mindset. So in other words, I'm not trying to hammer the NDP. I mean, I, I do like to on the program for sure. But if there was a change in government and, and, and perhaps a change in mindset perspective, could, could we look at brighter horizons for this? Or, or does the provincial government have that, that heavy hand in regards to this? Well, the, the short answer is the change in government is not necessarily the solution because we've seen a history in British Columbia of the BC Liberals not being a whole lot better on this particular issue. In Alberta, different story. They're doing some things that are very encouraging. Going back to your, your point about that documentary and about doc, what doc, Dr. Henry had to say, I will validate um, her point in, in, in so much as by the time someone is chronically addicted to synthetic opioids and living on the streets of Vancouver, um, it's a long way back. Mm. The outcomes are not encouraging. I'm, I'm not here to tell you that if, if, if I went to see that person and toddled them off to treatment, that they'd get their life back and be a productive member of society. I certainly like to give them an opportunity to try that. Um, but the reality is, here's the bigger problem. The conversation's all about that. That is but a small sliver of addiction isn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. The but, but more, more visible, I guess you could more say. More visible. It's tragic. What about going back to I, my friend, Matt Johnson's a clinician in Vancouver, does phenomenal work with first responders. He's also a professional firefighter. He likes to talk about upstream solutions because, okay, let's, we can talk about how we're going to treat or not treat or, or, or provide safe supply to that person. What about as a society, as a medical community, and those of us that provide care, we take a look at what can we be doing sooner to prevent that in the first place? Okay. The, I mean, I think any, we can all agree that people don't wake up one day and say, you know what, today's the day I'm going to start using fentanyl. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm going to go live on East Hastings. Of course, no one, no one starts that way, Right. Um, the, these journeys and, and, and even with, with people who aren't that far along, you know, we're working with white collar professionals who are chronically addicted to cocaine. When we begin to unpack their story, what we hear is a problematic relationship with substance use going back sometimes decades. So as a society, we're be, because of the attention that, I mean, we're all guilty of it, focusing on this, let's call it 2% of the addicted population, We've, by virtue of unintended consequences, collectively ignored warning signs in everyone around us. You uh, know? Hence the upstream part. The, hence the absence of upstream solutions. You know, that's one of the things I'm going to talk about on Friday is, is, is the medical system's uh, failure to, to recognize some of the problems and warning signs I exhibited in my own behavior. All right? I... I, I often work with with families who will bring me a, their young adult child. You know, oh, we just found out he's using heroin. So once I get to know the patient a little bit and, and speak to the family, what I learn is the child's 25, but when they were 15 years old, they were drinking regularly, smoking cannabis, uh, list of problematic behaviors, Um. And, and we're all desperately wishing we had done something a decade ago. All right. But we've, we bought into this notion that, you know, showing up, falling down drunk on your parents' doorstep is a rite of passage. We bought into this notion that alcohol and cannabis are benign. 
Um, I, I literally hear it from families. I hear it from employers too and spouses all the time. Uh, well, at least he's, you know, at least he's got a roof over his head or, you know, at least he's not injecting heroin. You know, there's this tendency to minimize what they're seeing and not acknowledge it for the red flag that it is. So when I hear Dr. Henry talk about that, and it's on the one hand, it's accurate, but I immediately go to the place of how did we get to a place where we've got thousands and thousands of people living on our streets, hopelessly addicted? Because in order to get way over here, there was a path along the way. There were so many people that ignored warning signs. And, and I'm going to dive in there because, again, I I, I have a, a relative in, in Alberta right. whose son um, addicted to cannabis, could be more, could be, I, I don't know the whole story, right. lost the initiative. So has a degree, but, but fundamentally just wants to do menial jobs, uh, checked out of the world, so to speak, moved back in with the parents. And, and they were asking me, and again, I am not the person to ask, but they're asking, how do we cope with someone? We don't want to force them out. We don't want to hold their feet to the fire. But again, we're shaking our heads going, this is the same thing over and over and over again, where staying out late, sleeping in all day, and then, you know, picking up these odd jobs, mowing lawns, what have you. Right. And, and they're just pulling their hair out going, we love this child. We, we care about this child, but we can't seem to break them out of this, this cycle because they're scared. They're scared of pushing them away by being too forceful on you are going to get better. Like this is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a difficult conversation. And, and, and often we're put in a place of working with families with, with children in that circumstance who are resistant to change. And um, I'm frequently, you know, the one to open up difficult, uncomfortable conversations around the fact that, you know, we can choose to be in a position where are, are we supporting healthy behavior or are we reinforcing unhealthy, harmful behavior? Is what we're doing helping him stay unwell or is what we're doing supporting healthy change? Mm. It's almost always cannot be both, right? So, so by putting a roof over their son's head, yeah, is that and and feeding and and really not holding him to task on rent or money or, yeah. I mean, uh, it seems like that's enabling. It is enabling. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Well, so, well, 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 certainly it is, right? Um, you know, so I'm, uh, I mean, myself and, and most of my colleagues are not proponents of, you know, kick, kicking with the curb and tough love. But go back to this notion, is what I'm doing really helping? You know, if I, if, if, if at the core of, of what I've decided to do is because I'm concerned that if I don't do that, he'll be homeless and it'll get worse. Let's house him. But if really the reason I'm engaging in that behavior is because it's uncomfortable for me to watch and really what I'm doing is soothing my own needs, which is sometimes the case, uh, we have to have a conversation about that. You know, so sometimes what families end up uh, agreeing to do as part, as part of a workable solution is attaching healthy boundaries to their offer of help. Mm. Um, 
I've seen it in my own extended family. We've had these conversations. You know, you, you come back and live here, but here's, here's the deal. This is curfew. You have to maintain full-time employment. If your father needs help shoveling the driveway, you will help shovel the driveway. If you need help raking leaves, you will be raking leaves. You will pay this amount in rent each month. In exchange for that, we'll house you and feed you. We'll love you to bits. You know, we're also going to make available to you a counselor because the reason you're here is because there are some struggles. We don't need to all know all the gory details, mm -hmm. but what we would like, we will pay for that counselor, but we want to have your permission to have that counselor report attendance and let us know how we can help. Accountability is our friend. All right. Now, in the absence of that, um, go back to what we talked about in the beginning. If, if I'm like you describe, addicted to substance, inclined towards, you know, by virtue of that relationship with substance, I'm comfortable doing less and I've lost motivation. And someone says to me, we're going to make it really easy for you to be unmotivated and really comfortable. Why wouldn't I do that? Sounds like a good deal. Yeah, just put it on cruise control. 100%. Yeah. You know, so, and I'm not blaming parents because we don't know what we don't know. So we want to educate parents because they think in their in their heart of hearts that, 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 that they're helping and they think, well, and I, I hear this. I, I, can, I can hear it over and over and over again. People say to me, well, surely to goodness he, he wants a career. Surely he wants a, a, a wife and to have a family one day. You know, he must want to save to buy his own home. Actually, no, he doesn't want any of that. Mm -hmm. Right now where he's at. Is comfortable. Is smoking dope, playing video games, and working to make enough money to allow that to continue. It's, it's, it's the insidious nature of addiction that shifts around our priorities and our ability to make what we'll look from the outside looking in as easy decisions. Each diamond is uniquely different. It is special and beautiful because of its rarity. That is the power and magic of a diamond. A new store in Kelowna is open to showcase this symbol of love and commitment. Herrera, fine jewelry. The name in Latin means rare and exceptional. Much like a diamond is extraordinary and rare, just like her. Herrera, fine jewelry. Featuring Takuri, Noam Carver, Burks, and Simon G. Jewelry. What's interesting to me is you've just created a game plan for a number of people listening that are probably having these struggles at home with their mm -hmm. child. But what's interesting to me is you just hit the nail on the head, which is have a plan, <laughs> which is, I think a lot of people just think, no, no, if I just feed them and put a roof over their heads, they'll just, they'll want this. They right. will, they will just... They will just figure it out on their own accord. And I think that's the delusion we all fall into is, well, I, you know, I figured this out when I was young in their age and they're mm -hmm. going to figure mm -hmm. this out. And this is, but we don't even actually have a plan. And that accountability plan is not saying, get out. I don't want anything to do with you. It's more work. That, and that, that sometimes is tougher for people is, well, I've got my own problems, <laughs> but they're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, it's. It's, it's, it's true, but, but the, th I mean, it's, 
the notion of we don't know what we don't know. You know, are, are we doing a really good job of, of telling, educating those parents and creating awareness around the fact that this is problematic behavior? Not really. You know, are we doing a very good job of educating the public or th that these are not choices and, 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 and behavioral problems so much as these, these are diagnosable illnesses with uh, prescribed treatments that actually are effective? We're, we're not. I mean, people don't try and do their own dentistry, yet they try and manage crap like that all the time. They're woefully inequipped. They're wading into spaces and making decisions and, and dealing with uh, health conditions in their child that they're not equipped to manage. And I have to jump in there because over the last couple of years, we went through a pandemic and I asked my son and I was, again, I, I think of, of the sadness I felt after I, I got this question answered, which was, I said, hey, out of all your friends, which one is struggling the most with this isolation? Because he was, you know, he was at home more. He couldn't, he, he's a very social kid. And uh, he looked at me and says, I am. Wow. And, wow. And, and it was a huge admission. And I just thought he was one of the, you know, the the pinnacles of strength for his friends. But he's saying, Dad, I'm I'm struggling. Like, this is this is really, really tough for me. And I think that's the the key is that checking in point for a lot of parents so that we we're we're way more equipped on the upstream to figure this out. And I and I don't know if in your practice if you've seen more as a result of the pandemic and the isolation and that that loss of connectivity and that loss of support systems. We're I, I, we're only beginning to learn the impact of the isolation and the stress and strain of the pandemic on society. You know, your 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 son is fortunate that you have the 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 self awareness uh, to ask that question. You know, the um, I, I share a statistic with you. Uh, I did a presentation to health and safety workers in Vancouver a few weeks ago. And I had a n newly released a press release from Sun Life saying that from 2019 to 2021, they saw a 75% increase in health and disability claims related to mental health and addictions. Oh, that's staggering. Staggering. Um, so when uh, when you speak candidly with, you know, if we, if we ask our, our friends, I know myself that isolation was terrible. I'm a people person. I like being out there. Uh, trying to connect with people on Zoom did not float my boat. Mm. Um, it really got me down. But you take an individual who going into the pandemic was already struggling with isolation or depression or anxiety issues. Um, devastating. You know, our what we saw coming into treatment was not a, a slowdown in the flow of patients but uh, a, a real uptick in the complexity of the conditions that we were treating and, and, and the concern amongst patients about what they were going home to. Because what, what, what we learn in the treatment process is the, uh, the importance of not isolating and finding community and finding engagement and having people, right? Um, did this, the, I think we're going to be studying for decades and decades how... how I, I would argue, I don't want to get into a whole conversation about it, but it wasn't so much the pandemic, but our response to the pandemic that triggered much of this. 
Well, and, and you talk about if, if somebody was on the, the precipice of, of falling into addiction and, yeah. and mental illness and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, we, we saw the, the surveys of, of there's different things that have occurred when they're a child. Um, there could be abuse, there could be, um, you know, the parent was, was addicted to something, you know, there's all these different factors and then you add into it an isolation exercise. And if you're not mentally, unless you have that mental net, and I talk about friends and family and, mm-hmm. and those that reach out and, and, and really hold you accountable, I, I, I worry about that, that, that tsunami of, of people that are still waiting to be discovered and and, 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 and and it is and will continue to be a tsunami because there's a delayed reaction effect to it. Things aren't magically resolved. The person who was, was crippled by anxiety about fear of getting COVID and dying a year ago um, is, is still struggling with that same fear, okay? The... Um, but what you touched on something, you know, really important is this, this acknowledgement that um, adverse childhood events, you know, um, a collection of, of traumas, some of us more minor traumas than others, these things have a cumulative effect that impact our resiliency and our ability to overcome. You know, what, when I first got into the field, you know, we would identify, we would look for in patients history of, you know, physical and sexual abuse and that sort of trauma and, and childhood neglect. Um, tremendous research about the impact of what were once perceived as more minor traumas, you know, the, 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 the death, um, people having to overcome death, uh, divorce in the family. And, Things like poverty, the correlation between incidents of poverty and uh, statistics around addiction. All of these things matter. And now we're going to stack on top of that the collective trauma around the isolation and the fear associated with the pandemic. Which is is really a, a perfect storm. I mean, it, it, it really pushed a lot of people over the edge. And, and uh, I was speaking to a high school counselor and he said... He was retiring because in the last year, uh, in the last year, and I'm talking about 21, he said that uh, he'd never seen more, he'd never had to do more suicide interventions in his whole career than he had that year. And and he said, it's incredibly taxing for mm-hmm. somebody that's in that in that space. And he said, you know, you, you try not to, you know, wear it, but he says after a full year of it, he said after countless times you get to a point where he just said you know there's a hopelessness that comes with that and he was trying to get stay out of that space and uh very interesting from a professional well compassion fatigue is a very real thing i mean we've seen it in our workforce the 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 toll that uh, and we see, you certainly hear about it in the in the medical field um the, the toll that it's taken on that population the um you know, to, to hear that about a high school counselor is, is is troubling because for many years I worked closely with School District 22 in the North Okanagan. And part of that contract was we, we would, um, you know, they would refer students to us, but we also had opportunities to speak with parents a couple times a year, large groups of parents. And, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult population. It's a difficult time in life. And, um, we're, we're, we're not doing the best we can to equip young people with the tools to navigate these sorts of adverse circumstances. You know, there's, there's, there's this, there's, there's this struggle we have as a society of wanting to do the right thing, but really not knowing exactly what that looks like. Well, I, I, I think I grew up yeah. in, in, my father was, well, rub some dirt in it and get back out there and yeah. suck it up, kid. And, you know, there was a lot of that going on. And, and I do think, you know, we're probably more self-aware, we're more evolved and all that kind of stuff. But a certain part of me speaks to that. Um, there was this rigidness that I, I, I think it, it really tested people and it introduced people to themselves. That adversity you got uh, growing up. And, and I mean, <laughs> we used to drive in the back of uh, pickup trucks and, you know, there, there was a, it was a different time. And now... I, I wonder if, if social media, technology, and all these things just add so much more complexity to what, what children and youth are feeling because, you know, they're drinking through a fire hose with the amount of information and, and the ideas and the thoughts. And, and yeah, I, I just think about that. Right. So armed with that information and that acknowledgement, I, I mean, I challenge parents. What, what, what are we doing to, to address that? What are we doing in our home? What are we doing in our schools, right? The um, <clears throat> Early on in the pandemic, I suffered a head injury, I had a concussion, a skiing accident. And part of overcoming that concussion was um, having to, being forced to look at my, my screen time, okay? But not only was it screen time, what I found on social media, um, especially, you know, engaging in Facebook forums is that the, um, there was this level of stress and anxiety associated with always being plugged in and connected and on and engaging. Uh, it was, it was difficult to go in and just be an observer. So not only was it is causing, uh, post-concussion symptoms because of the lights on the phone, there was this, uh, I came to the realization that it just wasn't good for me. So I went off social media and, and I still haven't gone back to Twitter or Facebook It's one of the best things I ever did, but it, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a case of, I didn't know until I was out of it, the toll that it was taking and, and how it really just used that horsepower that I didn't have. I think, I think more people should, should delete their Facebook. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 but what, what, you know, we can have a conversation with our kids about that. Oh no, we, <laughs> we could now listen, we've, we've gotten to the end of the hour, but I, I just so appreciate, it. I want to have part two uh, of Darren Taylor because Man, you're an interesting guy to, to talk to. And I mean, we got a lot, we got a lot more to cover. Let's put it that way. Thank you. I enjoyed it.